Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. So we've been talking about grace, and I want to continue that conversation. Actually, I want to conclude that conversation for the time being today with the cost of grace. And so I'm going to recap kind of where we've talked, what we've talked about, so that everybody's on the same page. If you haven't heard these messages, um, we'd go to great lengths to ensure that they're available to you on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. You can hear them or watch any of the sermons we've ever preached here. Uh, I ask that you that you do that. If there's one that ain't all that great, don't say nothing about it. Uh, I do the best I can. Uh, I'm a solid C minus preacher, but I, I'm I mean I'm I'm a solid C minus preacher, right? So uh, there's no need in shaking your head back there, bro. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so what we've talked about up to this point in regarding grace, the first lesson we talked about how grace comes finds its beginning in the nature of God. And according to the word of God, God's nature is that he is love. And so grace is a product of the love that God has for us. He loves us because of his love for us. He has showed mercy towards us and that he didn't give us the judgment that we deserve. Extended mercy in the form of compassion and that compassion in the form of grace, which is unmerited favor. That's the, that's the linkage between God and the love that he has for us and the favor we walk in. And those are credible things that God would consider us enough to pour out his nature on us, his undeserved favor on us. Amen? And so that's what we talked about the first week. The second week, we talked about it's great that we understand what grace, where grace comes from, but unless we have a revelation of grace, that grace doesn't do us any good. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives his testimony, essentially, his I was but God I am story to show how grace had made him, had moved him from this horrible, terrible person that was in the business of killing Christians. He had a God encounter on the road to Damascus, and then he began to teach and preach and do all the things, the incredible things that we know Paul to do. All of those happened for one reason, because God poured out his unmerited favor on Paul. Why is that important to us? Because everything that we accomplish for God is because God poured his unmerited favor out on us because we had at some point in our past a revelation of how beautiful God's grace is. Amen? And then last week, we talked about um, that Jesus is grace. Matter of fact, I'm going to say this differently. Jesus is grace. And this is what I mean by that. I gave you two definitions over the last three weeks for grace. One of them I just said, which the academic generalized definition that we give everyone. It is the unmerited favor of God. But I also told you in the first lesson that grace is the 
restoration of a love once lost. And so Jesus is perfectly both of those things. Jesus is the extension of favor to us that restores the love that we lost because of our sinful nature. Amen? And so Jesus is grace. You have access to grace because of Jesus. Everybody on the same page? You didn't do nothing to deserve it. You didn't do anything that caused God to be provoked to give you grace. There's nothing good in you according to the word of God except that which God placed in you. Jesus is the reason you receive grace. Everybody all right? I want us to understand that I'm not a fatalist. I don't believe that. It's not that I don't believe I don't particularly care for the verbiage that says, you're a horrible person. You're always going to be a horrible person like some of these fire and brimstone pastors. Jesus Christ caused you to be something other than a horrible person by the grace of God. But were it not for the grace of God, you're destined to hell. Everybody okay? All right. Every now and then I I get a little um, old school preaching. I think it's okay for a pastor to tell you, that without a relationship in Jesus Christ, you're destined to eternity in hell without him. Matter of fact, I think there's too many people that are unwilling to tell you such a thing. There's a sermon out there that many of you, if you haven't read or if you have, it's by Jonathan Edward called um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You guys ever heard of this sermon? If you haven't read it, I recommend you go read it. It is just a straightforward gospel message presentation and how we deserve judgment because God has every right to be angry with us but determined not to be angry with us because he loved us and so he sent Jesus to us. And it said that in that time, because man was sensitive to the heart of God, conviction fell on that open-air preaching that he was doing so strongly that the men in that field would were grabbing a hold of the trees for fear that the ground would open up and that hell would swallow them. I pray that kind of conviction on the church today, that we are so convicted by the gospel message of Jesus and the grace that he has given us that without it, hell can swallow us up at any time. But God, amen? I know I sound very passionate today, but I think we're living below our station. We are meant for greater things than to scratch by than to get by. Jesus Christ died to give us favor and to restore us back to the love that he has for us and the love that we gave up. That's all new stuff. <laughs> First service didn't get that, so you're welcome. Oh, Chuck was telling me he was doing, if you don't know Chuck, he's the one that did the offertory. He, he said, those first two were different than each other. I can't wait to see what you say in the third one. I told him, me either. So those are the first three sermons. I haven't even got into today's sermon. Today I want to talk to you about the, the cost of grace. Today I want to talk to you about the cost of of grace. How many of you guys have heard the term, and probably most of you, because it's pretty regular, pretty, it's a pretty normal statement. Grace is free. 
How many of you guys have heard grace is free? Just one person? People say that all the time. Grace is free. God gave us grace for free, and he did. But grace isn't free. Grace cost God the greatest gift he had to give us. There was Grace came to us at a great expense. The life of the Son of God. And he paid it happily. Why? Because he loves us. Because he revealed himself to us. And because he desires more than anything in the world that we walk in that unmerited favor and that our love be restored through that Christ Jesus sacrifice. So grace should cost. Grace cost God and should cost us. But we have caused grace to be cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He said it is costly. Grace is costly because it cost God the life of his son. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus. He continues by saying we have cheapened it, by saying this. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. It's a grace that we determine what it should look like, is what he's saying. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Let me tell you, without repentance, there is no forgiveness. He's saying flippant forgiveness, insincere forgiveness will not save you. For me to say do something that I know is wrong according to the word of God or later find out is wrong according to the word of God, and I just flippantly go, oh, I'm sorry about that, God. You might as well just shut your mouth and never said nothing at all. You should be reverent. You should be sincere about your repentance if you expect your repentance to work. There was a quote by Matthew Henry. He's a commentator, and he says, we should allow the Holy Spirit to hover over our sin long enough that it literally, or not literally, that it digs that sin out of us, never to be replaced again. But we don't do that. We don't take time and consider our sin. We just flippantly ask God to forgive it, have no desire for it to be removed from us, and move on and wonder why we get stuck in our sin again. We get stuck in our sin again because we never left our sin in the first place. We just made ourselves feel good about having asked God to forgive it. But he, so he says, it's preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. That means it's expecting a church family without responsibility to the church. Did you know you have a responsibility to the church? If you say, I am a Christian, you should act like a Christian. If you say, I'm part of the church, you have a responsibility to the church. Did you know if you step outside the bounds of your responsibilities to the church, you should expect, according to the word of God, to sit under discipline for that? But you discipline Christians today, they leave and go find another church because they expect that baptism should come Family should come without expectation of family responsibility. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace sits under, or grace sits under the discipline, knowing that it's for our restoration. Was talking too fast, everybody with me? Okay. 
It's communion without confession. It's remembering, which is what communion is, without reverence. It's cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's salvation without growth. That's what grace without discipleship is. Oh, no, I gave my life to the Lord. I had my moment. But I'm not going to grow in the Lord. I'm not going to study my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to come along with somebody else who doesn't know Jesus or who just came to know Jesus and grow them. That's cheap grace. Grace should cost us something. He continues, grace without the cross, which means love without the cost. You expect the grace of God without the cost of God's love, and it's not possible. Grace without Jesus Christ, which is favor without lordship. We've cheapened grace by giving, by desiring favor, but not lordship. Did you know, how many of you guys have heard of Jesus Christ, my Savior? He is, this is going to blow your mind. He is secondarily your Savior. He is primarily your Lord. If He can't be your Lord, He will not be your Savior. Man, that rubs some Christians wrong, but that's true. If I'm not willing to do what He says, when He says, how He says, according to the Word of God, then I've not declared him as, or then I'm not treating him as Lord, which means the declaration of lordship that I made doesn't mean anything, bears no weight, and it's probable that I'm not saved at all because I can't have a savior unless I have a Lord first. But cheap grace allows for all of those things to happen. Cheap grace says, I can just expect a savior. I can expect to be part of a family. I can expect to flippantly ask for forgiveness. Real grace costs us something and expects something from us. And that is nothing short of full commitment of your life and pursuit of God through Christ Jesus for all of your life. Now, somebody's going to say, man, that sounds hard. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read that it was supposed to be easy in the scripture. It's okay if it's hard. I've never had any, I've never possessed anything in my life that was worth having that wasn't difficult. Certainly the thing the most worth having would be the most difficult to acquire or maintain because acquiring it's easy. Amen. Feel like I'm talking tough at y'all. I'm not trying to talk tough at you. I just want you to know that God did it all. But we have a responsibility too. And I think that's okay. If anybody ex deserves to expect something from us, it's the person that gave everything for us. And so with all that said, I want to tell you out of Philemon, I'm going to teach out of Philemon today, which isn't a book at a lot of folks preach out of. It's not even a book. It's a letter. It's Paul's smallest letter, in fact. It's only one chapter, 25 verses. And let me kind of explain to you what Philemon is. Philemon is a, is a letter of reconciliation. 
There's three individuals listed in this letter primarily. There's Paul, who is writing the letter, to Philemon, who is the owner of a slave named Onesimus. Stay with me because this becomes important. Onesimus ran away from Philemon and either, it's not real clear, but did something to really harm Philemon. I don't know if he stole a great deal of money from him or physically harmed him, but harmed Philemon in leaving. And so he owed Philemon a debt. After he left, at some point, he come into contact with Paul. Paul must have explained the gospel message, Christ and him crucified to him. Upon being saved, giving his life to the Lord, Paul explained to him, you still have a debt to pay. Did you know your salvation doesn't relinquish you from the debt you still have to pay? I can get saved but still have to bear the consequence of my stupid decisions. And so he tells him, he says, I'm gonna, you need to go back to the person that you have offended, the person that you've harmed, and you need to ask their forgiveness. And I'm gonna, I love you, so I'm going to give you a letter to take with you because he and I are in relationship to kind of act as a, a buffer, a reconciliation letter, so that he may receive your apology well, which I think is a beautiful letter. Here's why I think it's a beautiful letter. Now, this is how I read it the first time. It's, it's not outlined this way, but this is how I see it. It's a perfect, in my mind, type picture of the relationship between us, God, and Jesus. Here's why. Here's why I think so. Because Paul, in this letter, is making intercession to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. So in this letter, I see Jesus making intercession to God for us. And boy, let me tell you, if that ain't a letter of grace, I don't know what is. And so he makes this thing, and he tells him, in verse 17, I'm going to teach 17 through 21. He says, if then you regard me as a partner, this is Paul talking to Philemon, if you, if you regard me as a friend, accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you any charge, anything, charge that to my account. I'm going to stop there to make my first point. Grace cost Paul. Paul says, if then you regard me as a partner, if you're my friend, accept him as you would me. So he's willing to put himself, his own reputation, and the relationship that they have on the line. You guys ever set yourself up, put yourself in a position to charge the equity that you have in a relationship to restore another relationship, whether it worked out good or bad, that's what we're called to do with the gospel. We're called to make steps between us and the people we know so that they might come to know Jesus. Whatever they've done, Lord, whatever can be done, Jesus said, whatever can be done, I ask that you charge it to me. And then after that, he gave us that ministry of reconciliation. He told us, this is what I've done, now you do it. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we speak on behalf of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he used his relational equity to reconcile the two. Jesus used his relational equity to reconcile the two. We should use our relational equity. You see where I'm going? Our relational equity so that other people can be reconciled to God. How many people do you know that don't know Jesus? Because the Bible says that you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. The Bible says that you've been extended grace, that you are ambassadors, ones who should speak on behalf of God so that they may come to know God too. That's a pretty hefty responsibility. It's a responsibility that Paul was willing to make in the physical because he understood that God did it in the spiritual in Christ Jesus, and so should we. Amen? Not only that, though, we have to be willing to take the physical cost. He says, but if he was wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Remember I told you, he did something to Onesimus or Philemon. He stole from him, hurt him. There's, there is some account, although you don't see it very often. I'm not sure I, that Onesimus may have even physically harmed Philemon's wife in trying to get away. So there's a pretty big debt that he owed. And he said, whatever it costs, whatever needs to be charged there, whatever needs to be done to make that right, I'm willing to pay that out of my own pocket. Because y'all's relationship being restored is more important than what it costs me. Can we get to that place, church? Can we get to the place where we say to our friends, to the people we know, to strangers, you getting your way to Jesus is more important than what it costs me to get you there. Because that's what God's called us to do. Because that's what Jesus did. Amen? Grace cost Paul, but Paul was willing to pay that cost because he understood grace cost Jesus. Which is my second point. In verse 19 through 20, it says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you, not, I'm going to start over. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even more, even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ Jesus. Our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, voluntarily assumed our place. You know why this is a letter of grace? Because Onesimus hurt Philemon, not Paul. Because Onesimus sinned against Philemon, not Paul. We have sinned against God, not Jesus. Romans 3, 10 through 23 says this. 
or not 10 through 23, 10 and 23. It says, no, none are righteous, no, not one. Not one seeks after the Lord. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that? Did you know you were in worse shape with God than Philemon or than Onesimus was with Philemon? That all of us have fallen short of the glory of God through the rebellion of our sin. We spat literally, or not literally, but um, we spat in the face of God in rebellion to what he's told us to do. We walked away from a perfect love. And we deserve to be punished for that. But here's the beautiful piece. Most people think Romans 3.23, a negative verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't think it's as negative as we think it is. Here's why. Because all have fallen short. But all aren't still short. I'm not short. Anybody that's confessed the name of Jesus is no longer short. And if you've ever called out the name of Jesus, you're not short. God has extended grace to you. Amen? And he did it when we didn't deserve it. We did it according to Romans. He did it according to Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still the worst of the worst, Jesus died for us. What kind of love motivates such a thing as that? How many people in your life could you count that you'd be willing to die for? Not just die for, but heinously die for. Some of us all have somebody, probably. I'd die for my wife. I'd die for my kids. But I'd hold, I'd use both of them as human shields to keep my grandbaby safe. Sorry. <laughs> and then I'd die if I had to. But God did it for all of us. Amen? When he didn't have to. We were guilty, not Jesus. Romans 6.23 shows that the debt that was owed is ours. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus not only wasn't guilty of our sin, but then he assumed our sin. He took our filthiness Filthiness that's like dirty rags upon himself. In 2 Corinthians, it says this, 521, he made him who knew no sin. Everybody say no sin. Jesus didn't know any sin. He'd never been defiled by sin, but became sin on our behalf. He took our sin. You want to know why he did that? Because that sounds crazy, right? He put himself in the place of condemnation and judgment. You know why? The second half of that verse says why. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we might be brought back into relationship with him. 
It's the same reason Paul wrote the letter to Philemon, so that Onesimus might be brought back into relation. He said, whatever the cost is, I'll absorb it. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. But I need them to be back in relation. I need y'all to be back in relationship with each other. And Jesus said the same thing to us. Whatever I have to do, whatever it costs me, I'm going to do whatever is necessary. I'm going to stand by the plan created from the foundations of the earth, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make sure that you guys, us and God, are brought back into relationship with one another so that we might be the righteousness of Christ. And that's beautiful. We should have had to pay that cost, not Jesus. Jesus shed his blood for us. And he had to because there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, according to Hebrews. Why would he do such a thing? I answered that question in the first lesson. Because he loves us. Imagine a love so big that it endured this. I'm going to read something to you, and I don't necessarily want you to follow along, although you're welcome to. Matthew 27, starting in verse 26. This is how much Jesus loves you. Then he released Barabbas for them. But ever, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Did you know we read our Bible too fast? People say, man, I just need to get through this. I'm doing a chapter a week. Or I'm on this Bible reading plan, so I got to read five chapters a day so that I can get done with my Bible in a year or whatever. Slow down. Read your Bible and read it however long it takes you to read it. Because the commas, the words, they mean stuff. If I'm just reading it for the sake of reading it to check it off my list, I'm missing a bunch of stuff. And this is what I mean. It says that they took them and they scourged him. If you just get past that, you miss the magnificent horror that that is. To be scourged is to have 39 lashes, according to other places within the Gospels. He received 39 stripes from a cat of nine tails. That means each strike, he got hit nine times with leather straps that had either sharpened bone or sharpened rocks on the end of them that were designed to snatch, snag inside the meat, be stripped away, and pull the flesh away from the bone. Just one strike was nine actual strikes times 39. By the time they got done, his back would have been just a mess, a hamburger, stripes of meat. And we read the word scourged and we get past it. Do you understand what Jesus did to extend grace to us, to pay the price for us? But that's not that's, that's just the scourging. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Another place says that they beat him. You know how much a Roman cohort of soldiers is? 480 soldiers. It specifically says all of them. 
the entire Roman cohort, 480 men trained in violence, gathered around violence and perpetrated violence against our Savior, and he endured it silently so that we could be reestablished in our relationship with God, so that he, we could assume the wrath that he could assume the wrath that we deserve. Then it goes on and says, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, stripped him naked. Could you imagine you created the universe and they're going to strip you naked and shame you in front of other people and then put a scarlet robe? They're all, ah, we're going to put this scarlet. Not only is that mocking, but let me tell you, that scarlet robe was laid over fresh wounds. You're going to see in just a second where they, they put a crown on his head and then they ripped that scarlet robe off. That doesn't seem like that big a deal, except that they probably ripped it off. Between the beating or the application of scarlet robe, the beating, the crown, all the stuff that they did to him, and then the ripping, there was likely enough time for the blood at some level to coagulate inside the fabric of that material. So when they ripped it off, it reopened all those wounds and re-exposed all that to the oxygen, and it would have been just as excruciating the second time as it was the first time. Why did he do it? He did it so that you could be reestablished in your relationship to God. This should horrify us, but also cause us to fall so deeply and madly in love with Jesus that we are willing to pay whatever cost is necessary because we know we can't pay the cost that he paid for us. But then it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. They mocked him. They spat on him. They they did all this stuff. Finally, they drug him away and crucified him. All so that we might be in relationship with him. And then Paul tells us, remember that. Remember what was done for you so that you'll remember grace, so that you'll remember how much you're loved, so that you'll remember what was given up, how much God gave so that you might have the hope of eternal life. Remember, remember, remember. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the Corinthian church because they were misusing communion, so he had to write them a letter and instruct them about how to properly take communion. And he says, listen, before you take this communion, and I'm paraphrasing, in chapter 11, he says, you need to examine yourself. You need to make sure that you're okay with Jesus before you align yourself with the work of Jesus. Don't say you belong to Jesus or that you're standing in proper place for Jesus, that you've allowed the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sin if you're still in your sin. To do so is to place, a, place yourself under a curse is what the Bible says. And so Paul says, listen, before you receive communion, before you receive the sacraments of what Jesus, the symbols of what Jesus did for you, ask God to search you. God, is there anything in me that shouldn't be in me? And if he identifies something in you that shouldn't be in you, take that time to ask him to forgive it. But not flippantly, sincerely, let the Holy Spirit dig it out of you. Amen? I promised this church when we first, the very first 
time we took communion here that we would never take communion without repentance first. God deserves that. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray along with me. I'm not asking you to listen to me pray. I'm asking you to pray along with me and ask the Holy Spirit to, if there's anything in you, you may not even know what that is, but can I tell you, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance if there's something you've forgotten. And if you know of something or if he brings something to your remembrance, if you ask him to forgive you, the Bible says he's faithful to forgive and then restore you back to righteousness. So let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, and we examine ourselves now before we take communion, before we align ourselves with the work you so graciously did so that we might have eternal life. All the, the beating and the scourging and the uh, just all the horrible things that you allowed to accost your body for our betterment. God, before we align ourselves and remember those things, I ask that if there's a sin in me, that I haven't already asked forgiveness for, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you reveal it to me. God, that I might repent of it. Dig it out of me, Lord. God, I don't ask for what it benefits me. I ask because I know you deserve it because you loved me long before I loved you. So, God, I praise you. I thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, that offers it. In Jesus' name, amen. After, or actually just previous to that, Paul gives instruction for the Lord's Supper. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. So we've talked about how grace cost Paul. And we've talked about how grace cost Jesus. I want to talk about how grace should cost us. Grace extended forgiveness to us. Did you know that? The whole letter is about, please forgive this guy and restore him back to relationship. Everything that Jesus did was so that we might be forgiven and restore back to relationship. Church, it's time for us to stop holding bitterness towards one another. whether it be one another here or one another somewhere else. It's time for us to stop holding unforgiveness. There's a story in your Bible 
about a slave owner who forgave a debt that was an incredible debt of of a slave, of a servant. And that servant went to another servant who owed him a much lesser amount of money, and that servant couldn't pay it, and so he had him beaten. The master found out about it and put him in prison and had him beaten. So you ask yourself, why did he do that? He forgave him all that money, and he's going to beat him anyway. Here was Jesus' point in telling that story. Because you've been forgiven a whole bunch, you should forgive a bunch. For everybody that's forgiven should love. I'm calling you to forgiveness. Forgiveness will cause a root of bitterness in you that will destroy you. And so if you hold unforgiveness for any person, for any reason, let it go. Can I tell you forgiveness ain't about you or ain't about them? It's about you. It's going to bring health to your bones, not to theirs. When I was younger, many of you know, I won't go into detail, but I didn't have the best of parentage. And I was a runaway when I was 14 years old, lived on the streets of downtown Dallas. My papa found out that I had run away and went and got me and brought me back here. That's how I ended up here. And from that point forward, so 14, 15 years old, until 2008, I, I held bitterness towards my mother. And I, and I mean, 2008, I still held that bitterness, quite honestly. I told Angela, I said, I'm going to Dallas, where she lived, and I'm going to make her apologize to me. We're going to work through this. We hadn't talked from two, from the time I was 15 years old till 2008. I said, I'm going to make her apologize to me. We're going to solve this problem. We went down there. She asked my forgiveness, which kind of surprised me. And I left, and I, th- I felt pretty good about it. About two years later, about two years later, I'm driving down the road. I can tell you, I was on Three Mile Parkway in Nashville. And the Holy Spirit, and I tell you, it's the Holy Spirit. I don't say the Holy Spirit told me a lot of stuff, but I know it's the Holy Spirit because it's nothing I'd ever think of. The Holy Spirit says, all right, she asked your forgiveness. Now it's time for you to call and ask for hers. And I, was, I got indignant, man. I was like, ask her forgiveness? I was, I was a child. I got nothing to ask her forgiveness for. How, you must, I called Angela. I said, you believe it? I think the Holy Spirit, I, I ain't going to do it. And true Angela wisdom, she goes, yeah, yeah, don't do that. See how that works out for you, stupid. You know? And so I called her. Or so, so while I'm praying, I asked God, I said, why would I do that? She's the one that did this. She was the one that did that. And I just name off all this stuff that I won't share with you because it doesn't matter. And he goes, yes, but you're the one that caused a 32, 33-year-old mama 
to cry herself to sleep at night because she didn't know where her son was. Oh, it broke me. I, there was fault in me. And so I called and asked her to forgive me, and she forgave me. And here's the thing. From that conversation until now, well, really within six months, my spiritual growth skyrocketed. I didn't know that my lack of forgiveness was holding me back from what God had for me. But it was. Angela will tell you. The second I said, please forgive me, God started moving magnificently in our life. Not that he hadn't already, but it was, it was like we were put in hyperdrive. Why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that to say, let it go. You're only killing yourself. Amen. And I'm not saying that as some church euphemism, man. I mean, some of us have really got some hurt. But ain't none of us been hurt the way Jesus was hurt. And he forgave us. So if that's you, if you've got unforgiveness, maybe that's even turned into bitterness. Or the seeds of unforgiveness. You feel them starting to grow. I want you to come up here. I want you to pray through that. I'm going to ask Caleb to come up here, and he's going to sing that last song that we sang. Let that go. Burn that root out of you. Let the Holy Spirit burn that root out of you and be free of it. Amen? Let grace cost you something.